I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling. Welcome back to the FOSS podcast. My guest today is artist, director, writer, teacher, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow, Dario Kalmis, a multifaceted creative person and deep thinker. Dario has brought his talents to a wide variety of fields and excelled in them all. His runway shows for Pierre Moss have won him acclaim in the pages of Vogue and the New York Times. His art and curation have been displayed in galleries around the world. He teaches at Parsons School of Design, and in 2020, he made history as the first black photographer to shoot the cover of Vanity Fair. That same year, he launched one of his latest projects, the Institute of Black Imagination, an initiative meant to share the wisdom and innovation of what Dario calls the pool of black genius. While it started as a podcast, the Institute has since expanded to become an interactive website and will soon open as a physical space in New York City. Whatever form it may take, at the heart of Dario's immense creativity is a passion for storytelling and a desire to change the narrative around identity in America. Please join me in welcoming Dario Kelmis to the FOSS podcast. Dario, my friend, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be here. I have been so impressed getting to know you. And it's been over the last few months that we've become friends. And I feel like every conversation we have, it's a peeling back of this very complex and beautiful onion. And there are layers inside layers. And, and I'm just amazed every time I hear about a new project. We, we love at FOSS these, these multi-hyphenates, creators who work across you know, many different media and platforms. And you just so beautifully embody that. First, just... I am a huge fan and, and in a bit of awe. Um, and, <laughs> and I thought maybe I could ask you to start by sharing the story you shared with me and some others recently about a really big photo shoot that you did and how that came about. Yeah. Um, so in 2020, um, I ended up... Um, inadvertently um, and unexpectedly um, as the first black photographer um, to shoot a cover for Vanity Fair in its 106-year history. So first of all, that's awesome that you got that. Congratulations. And how could it take them so long to have a black person shoot the cover? It's interesting when it occurred, right? Because as I was shooting it, like, you know, doing this cover, like for me, I was really approaching it from like, this is my first cover for this magazine, right? Like that's enough pressure, right? But I, we actually did not know that I was the first black photographer when I was selected, nor when we were shooting. It was something we discovered afterwards. Wow. So, um, so that's really quite interesting that they were not doing this in any kind of reactive way, but also with it, quote unquote, having taken so long, it's something that I actually didn't even really think about that, you know, why has it taken this long? It was very clear to me that, you know, although I was the first black photographer to shoot a cover for Vanity Fair, I was definitely not the first black photographer who could have shot 
a cover for Vanity Fair. And for me, it really spoke to the importance of having like a diverse group of people at the decision-making table. It's really about systems. That's the lens through which I looked at it. And it's also the lens that I looked through the world that it's not necessarily about Vanity Fair. Um, It's actually not even about like an individual, but it's about what are the systems at play? What are the systems that keep us from black folk arriving? What Mm -hmm. keeps women out of corporate you know, offices, what keeps, you know, immigrants who are really just trying to find a better life for themselves away from the ability to do that. Um, you know, it's it's what systems are at play. And I think that's what eventually kind of landed me in the space of design. Who was the photo shoot? It was Viola Davis. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that was incredible. One, to get the call to be shooting a cover too, that it was Viola Davis who was like God's gifted to, to acting um, and just a titan uh, in her own right. Um, but then also like the timing, right? So the George Floyd protests were already well underway within the country and it was a moment of another moment, right? Like this was not new, right? This Black Lives, I called it Black Lives Matter part 86, right? It's this constant mm-hmm. like reminding um, this constant resurgence Um, of this topic Um, and knowing that what we were doing and like to take this image in this moment, um, it needed to speak to the time, right? It needed to speak to the time in which we were living. And so that really dictated the way in which I shot uh, the image and also the reference, which was called The Scourged Back. Um, So The Scourged Back, which is an image of Peter Gordon, who was a runaway slave. um, And it's an image of him from behind and him showing the multiple scars on his back. And so I use that as a reference um, for this image with Viola Davis to really really show how far we've come. And then also to show the beauty of not only blackness, but the beauty um, that black people have found in transmuting this suffering and this pain. It was amazing because you shared with us the cover and she is so beautiful and you see her looking over her shoulder, you're shooting her from the back and she has this beautiful form and and it's got these rich colors in the picture and and so like regal and and then you showed us the picture that it was inspired from which is so horrific but in doing that you made this incredible uh statement and you told a story of black experience in america and to understand how there can be a very rich story behind a single image. There's not a narrative, you know, you didn't write a thousand words. Although, tell me about your process, because I do think you actually do write, right, about your work. Yeah, I do write. I actually start all of my images with writing, actually. And so even for this, there was a like a 500-word essay that I wrote in really imagining Um, Viola Davis as the Black Athena and the Black Madonna and what those meant, right? Like the history of the Black Madonna versus, you know, who was seen as like the the mother or the queen of earth versus like the queen of heaven, which is a traditionally 
rendered Madonna, and then also Athena, right? The, the Greek mythological story of Athena, who Zeus was, uh, it was prophesied to Zeus that a chi- his child would overthrow him. And so when his wife was pregnant, um, he actually swallowed the baby. And Athena was actually birthed out of his skull and came fully formed. And so really thinking about the ways in which Viola's strength, right, overcoming unbeatable odds, right, when she was actually meant for death, right, and like destruction, that she actually came out and not only survived, but then thrived. So there is a storytelling element to to my photography. So this image was really an amalgamation of a lot of things that I was thinking about. So you are clearly somebody that is drawing from a very broad landscape of inspiration. Can you tell us a little bit about mentors and where you look for your inspiration in, in your creativity? Finding a mentor was something that came quite late to me because I was operating within all of these mediums, right? So starting out as an as an actor and a performer, singer, dancer, and then moving into photography and then into art and into, you know, fashion and experiential design, you know, to find someone who was moving through the world in a multitude of ways or in kind of a, um, a more dynamic way um, was quite difficult, actually. Um, and it wasn't until I met Jeffrey Holder, who was a, a, a dancer and actor and singer and painter and sculptor and costume designer and um, fashion designer. And many people would know him from a series of 7-Up commercials that he did. Um, but he was also the costume designer and director of the original Broadway production of The Wiz, for which he won a Tony and was the first black person to win a Tony for Best Director. He actually won it twice. You know, in meeting him, um, I saw, one, that it was possible to move through the world in this very kind of bravura form, right? Leontine Price would call it your, your, your bravura form. Um, <laughs> and, and more importantly, um, after he passed, I encountered his loft, which was full of books and costumes and, and scripts and sculptures and paintings. And what I saw were, were two things. One, I saw how much input it took to create an output like that. Right, that as 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 curious as I thought I was, oh Jeffrey was even more curious. I mean, and I'm talking like granular level knowledge of ridiculously, you know, like esoteric things that went all the way from fashion to mythology and occult to you know erotica to black studies to you know you know art movements and regional art and you know art monographs and like it just it just went on and on and on, and. What I also saw was that Jeffrey left behind this blueprint that this is a roadmap mm. to creativity. This is a roadmap to becoming. And so posthumous, posthumously, um, I found a mentor in mm. Jeffrey. Mm. Um, and then a bit later in Andre Leon Talley, who recently passed away, I showed him some work uh, of when I was in grad school. And he just was in awe. And it was really interesting to me because when I showed that particular body of work in grad school, which I thought was definitely above and beyond and way past the bar of what was required, um, my teacher at the time kind of poo-pooed it, actually. He was just kind of like, oh, that's nice. 
And then eight years later is this this figure, Andre Leontali, who instantly gets it, who instantly sees it. And not only did that begin our, um, I think, very important and, and memorable relationship, but it also showed me what does it mean to have someone who looks like you, who shares your experiences in a place of critique, mm. in a place of teaching. There's no doubt that there's so much more that needs to happen to create greater diversity in the creative fields. It's certainly something that we care a lot about at Future Storytelling. I'm wondering, when you talked about your insight from Jeffrey Holder that you needed all of this rich input in order to be able to create great output, and that's another way of saying this, right? You need to be able to have that kind of source material that reflects a diverse world if you're going to be able to create things that are reflective of that. And so this has led you, I believe, to a new project, right? I mean, I, the, the Institute of Black yeah. Imagination is is sort of <laughs> tied up in this whole idea, right? A direct result, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Tell me about it. After Jeffrey passed, like my first inclination was we need to keep these books together. Like we need to keep these books together and we need to um, allow other black and brown creatives access I set about to acquire these books, and over the course of three years, I ended up getting around 2,000 books from his collection. Um, And as I uh, grew and developed as an artist, um, my interest in design grew. So I was chosen for a fellowship uh, in Athens, Greece, um, by the, the new museum called Idea City. And there I heard a phrase that said, all design is predictive, meaning that the designer is predicting or dictating how the end user is going to interact with said design. And that phrase just completely shifted my lens on the world. It was crazy. It was quite flippant. It wasn't, it wasn't the title of a talk. It was just <laughs> something I heard that <laughs> stuck. And then I started to see the world completely differently. I started to see that everything that I was experiencing had been designed, had once been a thought in someone's um, head, and not only had it been designed, and not only was it predicting or even dictating how I was going to move through the world, it was also designing me. It was actually, at times, making my life more efficient or less efficient. It was stealing time or giving me time. Like it, it, it kept me from certain places and certain people, or it helped engender, you know, um, a connection. And through that, like that is the foundation of the Institute of Black Imagination that really posits that the world we live in has been designed and designed by whom and designed for whom. And realizing that in a world not designed with us in mind, black individuals have traditionally out of necessity, you know, hacked and jerry-rigged and remixed and scratched these systems that did not fit onto our lived experience. Like we have to be reimagining what type of cities we want to live in. We should really be thinking about access and liberation from the genesis of design versus it being like an ADA add-on at the end. Um, What does that look like? And knowing that that is dependent on the marginalized and the oppressed and how do we give them access to their imaginations so that we can all live more equitable futures. Mm. So that's what the Institute of Black Imagination is about. Mm. I'd like to 
um, sign up, please. <laughs> I'm joining this church. <laughs> <laughs> and also, Charlie, to really say, like, and it's also not coming from a place of, like, black supremacy, right? Like, like and it's going to be black people that are going to save us. No, it's not that at all. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's ensuring that those who have been systematically um, kept out of conversation and access um, to give them access to their imaginations. But it's actually really a double entendre because on one hand, you can read it as black people. On the other hand, you can read it as a way of moving through the world that's actually beyond race because really there's no such thing as race, right? Blackness and whiteness are not real. You know, we're sitting here on a Zoom. I can look at you. The only thing white in that room is maybe the paper that that photograph is on in the shelf, right? But that's not you, right? And when you look at me, you're not seeing black except maybe for the shirt that I'm wearing. So then what are we saying? And that is a design framework as well, right? That is a, that is a chimera that is put up. That is, that is the shadow in Plato's cave that we are responding to, right? Like the sign versus the thing signified. That's what um, this uh, 19th century philosopher and theologian Ludwig Feierbach speaks about, like this preference for the sign versus the thing um, signified. So we're really just reacting to signs and symbols when we say black and white. But what does it mean to move with your own black imagination, right? What does it mean to move through the world um, in the interstitial space that actually holds the light, right? You actually can't see the light except that it is on and in and couched in blackness, right? So the stars are actually <laughs> powered by this other much large force, right, of dark matter. And that's really what we're, that's really what we're talking about when we talk about black imagination, which then goes completely beyond race, right? So how do you start to give people of color access to their imagination. How do we accelerate that process in the world? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's something that can be accelerated, but I, I will say that, um, you know, for me, um, what we released um, last week, which is IBI Digital. So um, we have the archive, which is physical, but that also, if we're thinking about access, right, from the genesis of design means you have to physically come to view it. But there are people all over the place, right? There are people all over who maybe want to have access to this information. So what do we do? We actually create a digital version of this archive, but not just second rate or substitute of the physical space. Why don't we take this as an opportunity to create something completely different and unique unto itself, right? That, that the medium allows for, and I think... I look at myself as a storyteller who's just using whichever medium best tells that story. So in the medium of digital, well, we don't even just have books there. We can add videos, we can add essays, we can add um, photography and projects and things that actually create a much more robust system um, and exploratory experience. So what does that look like if we create a space like that around what cool things, you know, black individuals are doing like throughout the diaspora? And I feel like this is all explaining a bit of why you also teach. Yeah, the, the teaching for me, um, I teach a, a course I created at Parsons called uh, 
what is it called? Oh, it's called mm-hmm. Decolonizing the Gaze, Fashion, Race, and the Aesthetics of Visual Design. Teaching is, one, a joy, um, and two, to work at Parsons with individuals who are going to be our next designers, who are going to be creating um, culture moving forward, and to have this conversation as an undergraduate, right? So that as they create, as they design, they're already thinking about, what is the cultural impact here? Am I actually appropriating this culture? How am I maybe unconsciously perpetuating harm? Because the basis of that that course is that images are not benign. And I define images as anything that falls on the retinal plane. So that's moving images, still images, the built environment, architecture, urban planning. And when I say that they're not benign, I'm saying that within them are codes. Um, Within them are patterns and codes that define social hierarchies, where our bodies um, are meant to go and where they are not meant to go. Um, They reinforce beauty norms um, and standards. What does it mean to be blonde? What does it mean to be brunette? What does it mean if you wear glasses or not? What does it mean if you're overweight or not? Like, it's all hidden and it starts at a very, very, very young age. It starts, there's a reason in, you know, Disney movies that Esmeralda looks the way that she looks and Sleeping Beauty looks the way that she looks, that the flaxen blonde gets to be the princess and the kind of slatternly, maybe possible prostitute and sex vixen also, right, Mm -hmm. is Esmeralda the dark-haired gypsy, right? It starts at a very early age and if we don't, have the vocabulary to interrogate it, right, or even question it or to see it, then we then unconsciously agree to it and then also perpetuate it. And that is how oppression is passed along, right? Because we're actually not thinking about the things that we're consuming because we just assume that they're innocent and benign and also that they may just be fact and that's the way that things are supposed to be. And we just assumed that because it was here when we got here. So tell me about how this gets realized in your creativity. Mm. You, you obviously have a great depth of, of knowledge, of experience, and this all informs the things that you make, that you design. I mean, for example, you've done some spectacular runway shows, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, maybe best known for that. Like, tell us how this work plays out when you create an immersive experience for for fashion. You know, I think a through line that goes through the fashion shows, even the photography, and even what will be a physical space for the Institute of Black Imagination um, at the Oculus at the World Trade Center, is one understanding the frame and then subverting the frame. Mm. almost like a Trojan horse in a way, right? And so with the fashion show as well, I know a fashion show. I know what makes a fashion show, right? And so we'd make a fashion show, right? It is the spectacle. But the question is, how do you then subvert the spectacle? So yes, we have models, we have clothes, we do all the things, we do <laughs> runway, all the conventions, the entire frame of what a fashion show is supposed to be. But it's the content, it's the story that we tell in that moment that creates something else, right? That we bring out um, a speaker to give, you know, a bit of a short speech or, you know, almost sermon that, you know, I use music that really is a is an autobiography of both Kirby, the um, 
the designer and myself um, to speak to what we're wanting to speak to in that show. And it starts with writing. I actually wrote an essay around this concept of a double bind, which is a phrase that was coined by the cultural anthropologist Gregory Bateson in the 1950s, where he discovered that many of his schizophrenic patients had similar childhoods um, where they were receiving conflicting demands of both love and hostility from one or both of their parents. And so what ended up happening is that the child did not know what to respond to. Do I respond to this hostility or do I respond to this love that is kind of cloaking this underlying hostility? Um, and what ends up happening is a breakdown in communication, right? They don't really understand um, how to react. That essay was kind of given to everybody, and it became the frame in which we understood the show, period, which was really became about a play of opposites, right? It became about dissonance. I work with a musician um, who was at Menace School of Music at, at the New School, and we literally take Futures, Trap Niggas, and RGF Island, um, and we create this opera, right? This opera that's actually being sung at a fashion show. So you have something that is not quite that is not melodic and is a total rap, and then you turn it on its head and make it an actual opera, right? So there's already that kind of opposite. But then also, um, this is a show that Erica Badu styled, right? So that it was always this tension happening auditorily, visually, um, and even in the moment, right? That this fashion show, you're coming and people are coming expecting to be chic and to sit front row. And it's all about like, who's who, you're not there to get this message about depression and mental illness. So even in the space itself was this level of tension and dissonance. And so we just use that as a frame to construct everything. So then everything actually then becomes cohesive, right? Everything actually makes sense. I can't help but think about the important role that you're playing in your work in terms of becoming a kind of mentor, or role mm. model, and, and just simply in the act of redesigning the world through your experience and letting people see that and have it become part of their new pattern, you know, be inspired by that to just create a world that reflects the kind of diversity and creativity that, that it needs to have. I hope I'm not putting something on you that that doesn't feel right or or does that is that true i mean do you do you feel like you are out there through your work trying to paint a world in in the way you'd like to see it become um yeah maybe <laughs> I, you know i think you know there's a couple of things one like you know, to be a mentor, one, a pleasure, right? Like with my, with my interns and some of my former students, you know, and I see it as a real responsibility because, you know, many of them are like 20 years, 18, 19 years younger than me. And so I see it as my job um, to, to shorten, to, to give, them, give them some of their life back, right? Like let them learn in two years what it took me 20 years to learn, right? Like what are the lessons that I can give them so that they can actually accelerate even faster? So that, you know, is important. I have gotten messages that it inspires people and that 
is is really wonderful to hear. Um, but I also really believe that it is our natural state to bloom and to become. Um, I think that we are all multiple, multiple... Um, I think there's a multiplicity or multivalent uh, way of existing that, you know, capital has demanded that we define ourselves by what? The value we put back into the system. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so even when people say like, you're a photographer, right? I bristle because what you're doing is trying to place me in a hierarchy of value that really doesn't have much to do with my actual essence, right? But that's how we've been trained, to see each other through the lens of the value that they add to the accumulation of capital. And that is also designed, right? That is also a system and cannot be divorced from a history of you know, colonialism um, and particularly the British who love to categorize the fuck out of everything. <laughs> so... You know, so so that that is what we're responding to. We're really responding to capital. And so this expanded way of being, I think, is something that exists within all of us. And that's what I love so much about, um, you know, the trans movement that's pushing through, you know, culture. You know, I think there's so much vitriol against uh, trans individuals because what they're really showing us is that you can just be who you want to be. Be be your interior, right? Like like manifest what is inside of you regardless of what culture deems, right? And I think there's a vitriol because people resent it. I think people resent seeing someone else's courage and what it reminds them of is their own lack of it. This for me is a project, and when I say project, and this, I mean my life, is yeah. a project <laughs> of just allowing, right? Like, I'm just here to have a good time and see what I find interesting, right? And bring other people along for the ride, you know? And hopefully, maybe, let them know that they can do the same, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not any different um, than you are, and there are not stories within me that are not within you, and they're not any more or less valid. Amen. <laughs> I just have this image as you're speaking of just this beautiful garden with with so many different flowers blooming from people's essence, and you are one exquisite flower in it, <laughs> my friend. Yeah. And and I appreciate you're giving us permission, me permission, and anyone else permission to to become that same bloom, you know, that same flowering flower. So thank you. Oh, Charlie, thank you. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. A warm thanks to Dario Calmis for joining me on today's show. You can find links to see his Vanity Fair cover photo of Viola Davis and explore more of his work by visiting the link in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the FOSS podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a review. The more stars, the better. FOSS also produces a monthly newsletter that's filled with valuable information for storytellers of all kinds. You can subscribe for free by visiting our website at fost.org. The FOSS podcast is produced by Melcher Media, in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. 
I hope we'll see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Thank you.